Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with events of violence that may be disturbing to some. This episode depicts violence against children. Listener discretion is advised. There's a lot more to this story than just in cold blood. This is Method and Madness, Episode 28, The Clutter Family Murders, Part 2. I'm your host, Don Gandhi. The body was dismembered. A ransom note was discovered. Hiker stumbled upon the nude body of a local... Police are looking into the brutal slaying of a young woman. There may be a clue in a released 911 call from... The victim said she was stalked for five years. Held captive inside a storage container. It was a twisted mix of obsession and revenge. No weapon has been located. Shot while asleep in their beds. Method. And madness. The number one song on the radio that week was the somber tune Mr. Blue by the Fleetwoods. If you were going to the movies, you might be seeing Ben-Hur. President Eisenhower was the leader of the United States. If you were born that week, you'd be 61 years old today, a baby boomer. If you lived in Holcomb, Kansas, that week would hit differently. Anniversaries of that week would bring back the dark memories bring them back to the surface. And friends and family of the clutters would try to remember a time before that week, before that day on November 15th, 1959. They were wonderful people, said Herb's and Bonnie's granddaughter. Herb Clutter was extremely well-liked, always wanted to get to know you never met a stranger, as they say. Bonnie, a gracious woman and hands-on mother who loved fiercely, wanted her children to grow up and be the best they could be, and who was fun to be around. Nancy, friendly and fun and kind of boy-crazy. Kenyon, a jokester and outdoorsman who was good with his hands. The family had been planning on hosting a big Thanksgiving gathering in just a matter of days with lots of relatives. Bonnie had planned activities, and the clutters were well-equipped with plenty of beds and space. But that big Thanksgiving celebration would never come. In the previous episode, two unknown intruders broke into the Clutter family home in Holcomb, Kansas, November 1959, and they spent about an hour demanding cash from a safe that didn't exist. After stealing no more than $50 in cash and tying up each member of the household, Herb 48, Bonnie 45, Nancy, 16, and Kenyon, 15, the two men murdered them one by one with a 12-gauge shotgun. Additionally, Herb's throat was slashed. The body of Nancy was found by a friend the next morning before church, leading to a call to police and law enforcement responding to a grisly crime scene. After Herb, Bonnie, Kenyon, and Nancy were discovered and their autopsies conducted, Coroner Dr. Robert Fenton said he'd never seen a scene as gory as the one he saw at the Clutter home. The only evidence left behind was a bloody footprint near Herb Clutter's body and cords that were used to bind each member of the family. In today's episode, we'll identify the two killers and go over the investigation and the account in the killer's own words of what happened that night. And finally, 
was another murder in 1959 in Florida somehow connected to the Clutter family murders? Let's dive in. Before the murders of this wholesome family, Holcomb residents didn't live in any fear. The post office in town never had a locked door. I know it's the true crime cliche, but hey, it's true. After the murders, residents described the community as a loss of innocence and a violation of safety. Garden City Police Department Chief Mitchell Geisler and Assistant Chief Rich Rolliter responded to the scene. Rolliter took photos, which picked up a footprint that wasn't visible to the naked eye. A print in the dust in the basement that tipped investigators off that there was a second suspect. This wasn't the same bloody footprint discovered earlier. This boot had a diamond-shaped tread. Additionally, there was a photo taken of a tire track, as well as photos of the victims and the crime scene. Sheriff Earl Robinson arrived. He knew the family, but he would need help with the investigation from someone with more experience with homicides. Was there any sign of a struggle in the house? Uh, none that we could see. And have you called in any extra state help to help you in this investigation? Yes, we have. We have the Highway Patrol and the Kansas KBI. So in came 47-year-old Alvin Dewey of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, working with agents Nye, Church, and Dunst. They all led the investigation. Working with the physical evidence, the bloody footprint, they were able to identify that the sole was a cat's paw sole design, something that would confirm the killer's identity later. Other clues trickled in during the following weeks. A radio was missing from Kenyon's room, as well as a pair of binoculars from the home office. Agent Dewey surmised that due to the brutality of the crime, that this was someone who knew the family. The brutality and also some of the personal touches that the killer or killers had done, like laying a mattress down for Herb and pulling blankets up to Nancy's neck after tying her up. He noted that Herb Clutter had taken out an insurance policy the afternoon of the murders, but it turned out that this was a plan that was a long time in the making and didn't have any suspicion around it. Surviving daughters, Ivana and Beverly, were the beneficiaries of the $40,000 life insurance policy but were never considered suspects. Police naturally looked into the last person who was known to see the family. We know from the previous episode that it was Nancy's boyfriend, Bobby Rupp, and Nancy's gunshot wound was the only one that was in the back of the head, whereas the others were shot with the killer facing the victim. Bobby was interrogated by Agent Dewey, passed a lie detector test, and was cleared. Dewey said he knew early on, from Bobby's character and from his grief, that he had nothing to do with it. Agent Dewey and the other KBI agents continued to look into tips and checked into other family members and friends, but weren't coming up with anything solid. Even after a local paper offered a $1,000 reward for information leading to solving the murders, 250 people called in with tips that led nowhere. But then on December 5th, 1959, 10 days after the murders, law enforcement got word that an inmate at Lansing State Penitentiary in Kansas had some information. Wayne Owens of the KBI went to interview the inmate 
32-year-old Floyd Wells, who was ready to talk for a reward, for a chance of parole, perhaps. Wells had worked for the Clutters between 1948 and 1949 and seemed to recall that Herb Clutter had a large amount of cash in a safe, which he had used to pay for some lumber. Sometime later, Floyd Wells had been arrested for burglary and larceny and then was imprisoned at Lansing, where he became acquainted with an inmate by the name of Richard Hickok. Richard Hickok was born in Kansas City on June 6, 1931, into a quote-unquote normal American family, to parents Eunice and Walter, who were farmers. Richard, Dick, was an athlete as a kid and got pretty good grades. At the age of 19, he married his first wife, 16-year-old Carol, and they had a baby boy. That same year, He was in a serious car accident. He was ejected from his car and suffered major head injuries as well as facial disfigurement. Reportedly, it was after that accident that Hickok's personality changed, according to his first wife, Carol. Hickok later cheated on Carol and married his mistress, having two more children, boys, with her. Hickok was described after the accident as a gambler, a con man, a heavy drinker with a violent temper who had a penchant for writing bad checks. He stole some firearms from a home and attempted to sell them to a pawn shop, but was arrested and later convicted in 1958. It was then that he met his prison mate, Floyd Wells. Hickok had told Wells that he was planning on looking for some work once he was released, which was coming up shortly. And Wells told Hickok about Herb Clutter, a prosperous man who owned a farm in Holcomb, Kansas, and that he had a safe where he easily stored $10,000 in cash at any given time, the equivalent of which would be about $94,000 in 2021. It was during these conversations that Hickok mentioned another convict friend of his, Perry Smith, also doing time for theft, who had said he'd murdered a man once. Smith was also getting released from prison soon. Hickok had plans for he and Smith to, quote, pull some jobs and to pay a visit to the Clutter family home, where he'd tie the family up, rob the money from the safe, and kill them. After all, if Smith was capable of killing, he'd be a good partner. Perry Smith was born in Huntington, Nevada on October 27, 1928 to parents Flo and Tex, who were rodeo performers. He reportedly had a hellish childhood, which consisted of an abusive father who was physical with both Flo and the children. Flo, an alcoholic, left Tex and took the children, but she died when Perry was around 12 or 13, around the time that Perry started committing theft and robbing businesses. After Flo's death, Smith and his three siblings spent time in an orphanage where the abuse continued by the nuns that cared for him. Smith was a chronic bedwetter and received violent punishments for that, including a brutal penile injury as a result of a whack with a flashlight. His brother later died by suicide, and Smith joined the military at age 16 and served in the Korean War. One Christmas, Smith rented a motorcycle and crashed it, 
He then spent the next year in the hospital, his legs severely injured permanently. He broke a hip and an arm and subsequently became addicted to aspirin, which he chewed rather than swallowed. He spent much of his 20s in detention centers, running around with street gangs, and committing petty crimes. He robbed a store in Phillipsburg, Kansas, and was serving a sentence at Lansing, which is what led to his meeting Dick Hickok. That summer, in July 1959, Perry Smith was paroled, followed soon after by Dick Hickok. According to Floyd Wells, he didn't believe that Dick Hickok was telling the truth about his plan to visit the clutters until that fall when he heard the news of the murders. Agents were able to confirm that Floyd Wells was telling the truth about one thing. He had worked for Herb Clutter. So with that info, Agent Owens checked into the ex-convicts Perry Smith and Dick Hickok and found that they were in parole violation. They had each skipped town. Hickok hadn't been showing up to work at a paint shop, not since November 20th. So a warrant was issued for Hickok's arrest for writing bad checks, and a search warrant issued on the farm where his family lived, his last known address, and the home that he was supposed to be staying at as a condition of his parole. On December 10th, agents questioned Hickok's mother, Eunice. Her account of the last time that she saw her son raised more red flags. He had gone out on Saturday, November 14th with his friend, Perry Smith. They had headed to Fort Scott, Kansas. Hickok had returned home around lunchtime on Sunday the 15th and then left again. While searching the home, agents found a bloody shirt in a drawer and a shotgun. On December 16th, Agents received information that a man had written a bad check at a business in Kansas City and was attempting to write another one, also in Kansas City. The business owners identified the check writer as Dick Hickok. One identified him from a photo. The other knew him personally. But before an arrest could be made, Hickok must have skipped town. He was nowhere to be found. Meanwhile, 35-year-old Truman Capote, a writer that had just seen success with his creation of Holly Golightly, in his novella Breakfast at Tiffany's, read an article in the New York Times about the Clutter family murders. He planned to write a piece on the crime, a series of articles, so he traveled to Holcomb with author Harper Lee, a longtime friend of his, and she accompanied him while he did his research. Capote spent the next four years off and on meeting the people of the town, conducting interviews, all of which would lead to his very successful true crime book, In Cold Blood. It was this book that brought the town of Holcomb to the American consciousness. This book that really introduced true crime as a genre. According to Goodreads, it's still the number one true crime book, followed by Helter Skelter at number two and The Stranger Beside Me at number three. In Cold Blood, published in 1965, has received much praise over the years. It truly is a captivating book. But despite its accolades and despite that friends of the victims are quoted as saying the events of the book were written as well as they could be, and police have said the same, In Cold Blood is not without its criticism, its accuracy questioned. Family members of the Clutters have cited at least 45 inaccuracies about the family alone. As mentioned in the previous episode, Bonnie Clutter is described as a, quote, invalid in many writings, 
And Capote really doubles down on these depictions. But to the people that knew her, this wasn't the case. I can't help but wonder if it's due to the time period. Today, tons of people suffer from depression and are not described as invalids. The discussion of mental illness is finally really coming to the table now, but in 1959, not so much. To me, it sounds like Bonnie Clutter was quite evolved, someone who acknowledged that she had an illness and sought out help for it. And her husband was very sympathetic to it, understanding of it, and was a fierce protector. But Bonnie Clutter wasn't defined by her depression. It's been said that Capote exaggerated scenes, misquoted Holcomb residents, and even received special treatment from the Kansas Bureau of Investigation, given exclusive access to files and photos. Now, if you are writing a book about a crime, and in order to get the good stuff, access to the files, the documents, the photos, you're probably going to want to form a good relationship with law enforcement, right? Capote even had permission to walk through the crime scene, the clutter home, much to the dismay of the victim's relatives, that saw that as incredibly invasive. So there are those that point out discrepancies between Capote's account in his book about Detective Alvin Dewey riding into town and being this hero that hunted down the killers and solved the murder. The discrepancy lying with documents at the Kansas Bureau of Investigation that show Capote may have written his book to paint Dewey in a really favorable way. Give me all the good stuff. I'll make you the hero of my book. Some of that criticism directed at Capote and In Cold Blood comes from the former prosecutor, who said that Dewey wasn't close to solving the murders when acting on his initial hunches regarding who the killers were. The agent thought that the murderers were someone with a grudge against the clutters, and he was hesitant to act on any investigation regarding the info he got from Floyd Wells. Dewey allegedly didn't believe Wells' tale, and there's criticism towards Dewey for not responding to the Hickok home until five days after receiving the tip from Floyd Wells. However, Look deeper, and there's more to it than even that. There are documents from Agent Dewey every day between December 5th and December 10th. He had attempted to obtain a warrant to go to Hickok's residence and to conduct a search. There are so many sides, and none of them are merely black or white. Yes, Truman Capote misquoted people probably because he famously never took notes while talking to them. Okay, that was his style. He would store it all in his head and write it down later. And he did get close to Agent Dewey and get access to tons of documents. But according to those that knew Alvin Dewey, that's just how the agent operated. We'll get back to In Cold Blood a little later in the episode. By Christmas, the KBI still hadn't located Dick Hickok or Perry Smith. But then days later came a break. Law enforcement in Las Vegas received an attempt to locate for the two wanted men who were likely driving a 1956 black Chevy. One night, an officer on patrol in Vegas saw the car and the license plates matched what was in the report. They arrested Hickok and Smith and alerted Agent Dewey in Kansas that the men were found. It was Agent Nye that asked the Vegas police if they'd found any boots in the Chevy. 
And sure enough, yes, they had. Two pairs, one with a diamond tread and one with a cat's paw sole design, just like the two separate prints that had been found near Herb Clutter's body. The KBI agents drove out to Vegas to interrogate Smith and Hitchcock separately. Initially, just asking about the bad checks that were written in Kansas City. And then, of course, came the whole, where were you on the night of November 14th into the morning of November 15th? At first, both men denied having any involvement with the Clutter murders. But then the KBI pulled out the one tool in their toolbox that they knew could get the men to start talking. The bloody footprint. The boots found in their vehicle had matched the prints found at the scene. Our evidence was footprints on the mattress box cover where Mr. Clutter was killed in the dust. These footprints were in the dust. And old Rowletter took his flashlight and, and uh, show, uh, shone it across the, the top of the mattress box cover. And you could see these footprints. And then he took pictures of them. Well, I was fearful that they might be arrested but we wouldn't be able to recover those boots. Well, luckily, here they had sent their boots and a lot of other stuff in a package to themselves, and they were arrested at the post office in Las Vegas when they went to pick those up. In fact, I lost the steak dinner because I bet Clarence Dunce a steak dinner that we would, that we would not find the boots, but we did. We just really lucked out. It didn't take long for the confession to come. By early January, Richard Hickok, the more conversational of the two, started talking to the KBI agents. He admitted to being there at the Clutter home that night with Perry Smith, walked the investigators through the entire night. But he said he'd never pulled the trigger, that all four murders were committed by Smith. Meanwhile, Agent Dewey was interrogating Perry Smith separately, but he wasn't talking. Next, the agents drove Smith and Hickok back to Kansas, each suspect in a different car. Agent Dewey was in the car with Perry Smith, and Smith was then informed, Hey, Dick Hickok? He's already confessed. Smith got angry. He started making his own confession on the ride back. Perry Smith's confession was very similar to Dick Hickok's, with some differences in dialogue. Hickok had written to Smith in early fall of 1959 and told him about a big score. The two men met at a bus station in Kansas City on November 11th, all set to do this big job that Hickok had been giddy about, to rob the home of Herb Clutter, who was apparently some rich farmer with a ton of cash. Hickok even had a drawn diagram of the home courtesy of his old pal, inmate Floyd Wells. They left Olathe, Kansas, and drove toward Holcomb with a shotgun all the time. Hickok kept saying, quote, no witnesses. He was prepared to kill everyone in the house, any amount. They were expecting to come across maybe four, six, or even 12 people if there were guests. Smith told Agent Dewey he had hoped they could get the money. He wanted it just as much as Hickok did, but wanted to do it without harming anyone. On the way to Holcomb, the two men had stopped at a hardware store to get some rubber gloves, tape, and cord to tie up the people they were about to rob. 
There was talk of getting black stockings to cover their faces, but they weren't able to acquire them. Smith and Hickok pulled up to the Clutter Farm a little after midnight and parked next to a tree on that long, Chinese elm-lined private road that led up to the house. According to Smith, Hickok had said that if they were seen by anyone, that that person had to be killed. There was excitement in their car as they looked around and saw the house, the barns, the land all lit up by the full moon. This was going to be quite a score, and Hickok, almost like he wanted to believe it was true, started chatting about how this guy had to have money. Just look at this spread. A house in the distance, about 300 feet to the left, caught the men's attention. A light went on in the house and then went off. Hickok, who had memorized the details of the home, the land, and the nearby houses, knew that that was the home of the hired hand, had their arrival woken someone up. Still, the pair were not deterred. They took a couple of swigs from a bottle in their car and walked toward the house. Smith, at five feet four, dwarfed next to his partner of medium height. They put on their gloves, Hickok carrying a flashlight and a knife, Smith holding the 12-gauge shotgun. They approached the house, knowing that the side door would lead them into Mr. Clutter's office where the safe was. Just as they'd hoped, the door to the house was unlocked. They walked in. Standing there in the dark office, the men looked around. Smith closed the blinds on the window, and Hickok turned on the flashlight. They looked on the wall behind the desk for the safe, but it wasn't there. They felt around for it, took in the sights of the office with books and maps framed and hung on the walls. Perry remembered seeing what he referred to later as a terrific pair of binoculars on a shelf in Herb's office. They found Herb asleep in the next room, wearing striped pajamas, and woke him up. Smith recalled how Hickok was so angry he thought he was going to hit Herb, who did end up giving them the cash he had on him. Herb insisted that he didn't own a safe, and Smith said that he believed him, believed there was no cash. He pulled Hickok aside and told him, This guy isn't lying to you. Floyd Wells lied to you. But Hickok wasn't having it. He was convinced there was a safe. Smith cut the phone wires in the office and in the kitchen. They ordered Herb up the stairs so they could get more cash from his wife, all the while Herb protesting calmly. After waking up Bonnie and taking a few bucks from her purse and getting the kids out of their rooms, they put all four members of the family into the upstairs bathroom, giving Bonnie a hall chair so she could sit comfortably. Smith then continued looking for the safe while Hickok stood guard in front of the bathroom door. Smith went into detail, told Agent Dewey how sick he felt that at one point he'd found a coin in Nancy's room, but he had dropped it, watched it roll under a piece of furniture. He felt disgusted with himself as he got down on his hands and knees just to get this measly coin off the floor. He then took a radio from Kenyon's room and the binoculars he had seen in Herb's office and brought them out to the car. Smith said they later sold the items in Mexico. It was then that they decided to separate the clutters. Smith took each family member and tied them up, bringing Herb and Kenyon one by one down to the basement. It hadn't felt right to have Herb lie down on the cold basement floor, 
So Smith had taken a mattress that was leaning against the wall and laid it down for him. Agent Dewey, listening to the confession, realized then that his intuition had been correct. He had a feeling that one of the killers had done this for Herb's comfort. Then he tied Kenyon up to the couch on the other side of the basement, securing the rope around his neck so he'd choke if he tried to move. Next, he took Bonnie to her bedroom to tie her up, and Hickok took Nancy to her room. Smith was concerned that his partner was going to rape Nancy, and he essentially took the stance of, not on my watch. His fear was confirmed when Hickok said he was going to go, quote, bust the girl, and offered that Smith could do so as well. It was Smith that stopped it from happening, wouldn't let Hickok alone with Nancy. At this point, Smith stopped his confession and said to Agent Dewey, I bet Dick never mentioned that in his confession. Dewey admitted that no, he hadn't, but otherwise, the two stories were matching up. Dick Hickok later would talk about his intent to rape Nancy Clutter. We'll get to that in a bit. Smith sent Hickok out of Nancy's room, told him to go look for the safe, an effort made to keep Hickok from sexually assaulting her. While Hickok made a last futile attempt to find the $10,000 in cash, he came across Nancy's purse in the kitchen and stole $7 from it. The men taped Bonnie's face and head to keep her quiet. They did not tape up Nancy. Next, they went down to the basement and taped Herb's and Kenyon's mouths. They then went to a corner using only their flashlight to see and discussed what they were going to do next. According to Smith, Hickok wanted to get rid of them, and the two engaged in essentially a game of chicken. You do it. No, you do it. But it was Perry Smith who finally took the hunting knife from Dick Hickok and slit Herb Clutter's throat. Smith told Agent Dewey that, quote, I thought he was a very nice gentleman, soft-spoken. I thought so right up to the moment I slit his throat. He saw Herb suffering, making sounds that Smith described as drowning. He handed the knife to Hickok and told him to finish him off, and he did. But Smith suspected that he merely inserted the knife into the wound that was already there. Herb had freed his hands from the rope, and Smith said he couldn't watch him suffer, so with the flashlight shining on Herb's head, he shot him. Hickok scrambled and found the empty shell. Perry Smith then walked over to Kenyon and shot him too, with Hickok picking up the shell. Up the stairs, they went into Nancy's room, where Smith said she was watching them. He could see her eyes as the flashlight shone on her. She said, quote, Oh no, oh please, no, 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 don't. And turned her face to the wall. He handed the gun to Hickok and he shot. Hickok had a tough time locating that shell, but he did. And then finally, Hickok killed Bonnie Clutter, leaving no shells behind. The stories, the confessions were nearly identical with one discrepancy. Perry Smith said he killed Herb and Kenyon and that Dick Hickok killed Nancy and Bonnie. But Dick Hickok said that Smith had pulled the trigger and killed all four clutters. After they fled the clutter home, the two killers pulled off to the side of a road 
near Scott City and dug a hole in the dirt. They buried the shells, the gloves, the cord, and the tape. Their big score ended up being about $50, the equivalent of which would be about $470 in 2021. About a week later, the two men drove to Mexico, sold their Chevy to a cop along with the radio and the binoculars. They were broke. Mexico wasn't prosperous for them, so they returned to the U.S. They hitchhiked through California on their way to Omaha, Nebraska, then over to Iowa, where they stole a car. They drove back to Kansas City, where Hickok was seen writing those bad checks. They then drove to Florida, where they intended to spend the holidays. After that, it was to Nevada, which is where they were caught, 45 days after the murders. Each man was charged with four counts of murder and faced a possible execution by hanging if convicted. And while there was never any confirmation that Smith had actually killed a man earlier in his life, as he told Hickok, in this case, Smith refused to sign his confession, which was later said because he did end up taking responsibility for all four killings. He had said that he just couldn't let Dick Hickok take the fall. Mrs. Hickok was a sweet woman, and he hadn't wanted to put her through that. The defense didn't have much choice but to go for an insanity plea. Dr. Mitchell Jones interviewed the men at Larne State Hospital and stated that Richard Hickok was impulsive and sociopathic, but was not without remorse. Perry Smith was paranoid and bordered on delusional with a lot of bitterness about his childhood, traumatized even. Dr. Jones requested from each man an autobiographical statement, a method in which you can gather more information from your subject, particularly if time is of the essence. And the men's lawyers encouraged them to do so, to be open and forthcoming. It would help their case, their defense. Some of the statements that Perry Smith included in his writings were, quote, I was constantly in trouble. I got expelled from school. I blamed many people for my lack of education. This only added to the many other hatreds and bitterness I had for others. Hickok wrote vaguely about an interest in young girls, teens. His wife, Carol, was 16 when they were married, and he had an affair with another girl who he got pregnant. He also stated that a major motive for him going to the Clutter home that night was knowing there was a teenage girl living there, but that Smith wouldn't let it happen. The trial began in March 1960. Perry Smith and Dick Hickok were defended by attorneys Arthur Fleming and Harrison Smith. Initially, the defense team had said that Hickok and Smith were going to enter pleas of temporary insanity. But once the trial began, there really wasn't any evidence presented to back that up. The jury consisted of all men, and they toured the clutter farm during the trial. One of the witnesses for the prosecution was Floyd Wells who testified that he had told Hickok, when the two were cellmates, that he had worked for Herb Clutter in 48 and 49 as a laborer and that the man had a lot of money. He seemed to remember a safe or a cabinet of some kind that Herb owned. 
Initially, Hickok had talked about going to Herb to apply for a job, but then started talking about robbing him instead, telling Wells he was planning on taking Perry Smith with him and that he would leave no witnesses, would tie the family up and kill them. Wells said on the witness stand that he was not in on the planning of the robbery, though Smith testified that Wells was to get 20% of the cut. Wells had drawn a map of how to get to the home and had given specific details about the layout of the house and who lived there. By the end of the trial, there was no real mystery about what the outcome would be. Neither man was unfit to stand trial, not insane. Dr. Jones did testify that Perry Smith showed symptoms of mental illness and that Dick Hickok was likely committing crimes as a result of his head injury a possible brain injury that had gone untreated after his accident. Still, there was no question of guilt here. There were confessions, after all. Richard Hickok and Perry Smith were both found guilty of four counts of murder and sentenced to the maximum penalty, death by hanging. On death row, Smith took to art, painting, and Hickok wrote a lot. to Politicians, government officials, etc., the appeals process was underway. And Dick Hickok wrote a memoir from prison. He had hoped to have it made into a book, but reportedly never found a publisher. In the 200-ish page manuscript, Hickok described in chilling detail what it was like to kill each member of the Clutter family, even saying that he did have one regret that night, that Smith was the one that pulled the trigger and not him. He at one point had wondered if it was all a dream when he had watched the news the following day and didn't see any mention of the murders. He realized it wasn't a dream when he saw the blood in his car and he felt smug that nobody could ever say that he had never done anything in his life. But Hickok was also known to be a pathological liar, so his perspective isn't necessarily one to be trusted. On the one hand, he admits that he and Smith were there to kill. Much of his account matches up with the evidence, but he also describes in the manuscript that he and Smith were hired by someone, someone named Roberts, and that while looking for the money in the clutter home, they felt panicked since they'd already taken their payment, and despite finding no substantial amount of cash, they had to follow through with the job. Hickok's account is weak. As later in his manuscript, he never mentioned Roberts again and reportedly didn't use this account as part of his actual defense. Going back to the book, In Cold Blood, arguably the biggest criticism of it may be about the relationship, the friendship that Capote formed with one of the killers. In January 1962, Truman Capote made his first visit to death row reportedly due to special treatment that was allotted to him, but not to other reporters. Hickok was easy to talk to, just as he had been with investigators, but Perry Smith was a harder nut to crack. It's been said that Truman Capote saw in Perry Smith a similarity to himself. The two ended up forming a very close bond over the next few years, and both killers wrote to Capote many times from death row. Smith 
had even written about what was going to happen to his body once he was hung, information that he had studied from a medical dictionary. It can be said that this friendship conflicted Truman Capote. He had come to Kansas to write a nonfiction book about four murders that caught his attention. He hadn't expected to become close with one of the killers. And on the one hand, he wanted an ending for his book. He couldn't publish it without a conclusion. The men were still on death row in 1965, five years after their conviction. Some say Capote wanted that ending to be the execution. But how do you have a friendship with a man that you want to see hung? On April 14, 1965, both men were scheduled to be executed by hanging at the Kansas State Penitentiary in Lansing, Kansas, and Truman Capote finally would get the ending to his book. The hangings took place at night with a heavy rain pouring down. It was done at the gallows, which today is an exhibit at the Kansas History Museum. The gallows were located in a separate building from where the prisoners were held. Inside the stone structure were about 13 steps that led up to a platform with a trap door. The prisoners, handcuffed, were brought in one at a time, led up the stairs to stand on a trap door. Their hands were tied down at the sides with leather straps so that they couldn't extend them out as they dropped through the trap door. The noose placed around their necks. During a hanging, the prisoners' necks break, the spine is severed, blood pressure drops, and they go unconscious. It can take up to 20 minutes for the person to die, but medical professionals have said they most likely don't feel anything. The warden read the official order of execution out loud, and a black mask was placed around the prisoner's eyes. A chaplain said a prayer, followed by, May the Lord have mercy on your soul. The executioner pulled a lever and the trap door opened, while an audience, including Truman Capote, watched as the prisoner dropped through the floor and hung for about 20 minutes before being pronounced dead. None of the members of the Clutter family were in attendance. Inmate number 14746, Richard Hickok's time of death was 12.41 a.m., and inmate number 14747, Perry Smith's, was 1.19 a.m. Reportedly, their final words were as follows. Dick Hickok, when asked if he had any last words, said, quote, No, I guess I don't. He then turned to KBI agent Roy Church and said, quote, you're sending me to a better place than this. He shook his hand and said goodbye. Perry Smith's last words were, quote, I think it is a hell of a thing that a life has to be taken in this manner. I say this especially because there's a great deal I could have offered society. I certainly think capital punishment is legally and morally wrong. Any apology for what I have done would be meaningless at this time. I don't have any animosities toward anyone involved in this matter. I think that is all. They were buried in unmarked graves initially. Then their tombstones were purchased by Truman Capote, which were later stolen. Floyd Wells reportedly did receive the reward for coming forward with the information that led to the arrests. He was never charged with anything related to the Clutter murders. Since the hangings of Hickok and Smith 
Two men were executed in Kansas in 1965. Nobody has been executed since, though the death penalty is still legal there, where the method is lethal injection. An unsolved murder, the murder of another family of four from 1959, came to the surface in 2012 when Sarasota homicide detectives decided to look further into the case. The Walker family was murdered in Florida December 19, 1959. Cliff and Christine Walker, a married couple living in Sarasota, were killed along with their two toddlers, Jimmy and Debbie. Christine was raped in her home, and Cliff walked in with their two small children. Upon Cliff entering, he was shot in the head. The killer or killers then shot Christine and the kids. If you're tracking the timeline, you'll notice that this murder occurred one month after the Clutters were murdered, under similar circumstances, and that Perry Smith and Dick Hickok were in Florida at that time, Miami Beach. They'd gotten down there on December 21st. Truman Capote, in his book, insisted that Smith and Hickok had an alibi and couldn't have been responsible. In December 2012, Hickok's and Smith's bodies were exhumed so that DNA testing could be done. The testing results were available in August 2013 and were found inconclusive. The murder of the Walker family remains unsolved. I think... What eats at anyone who studies the Clutter murders is that the killers had a choice that night, a choice to walk away after robbing the family, but for some reason that we'll probably never really know, they chose to kill all four of them. Was it as Dick Hickok had said that they had to do it to leave no witnesses? Or were the killers acting out of frustration, mad because they'd gotten this big score all wrong? They were so blinded by their greed and, in a sense, embarrassed by their gap. Were they angry at the clutters for not having a safe with $10,000 in it? And did they feel as though they came all that way they might as well make their time worth their while? It was senseless. Larry Thomas, the director of the Kansas Bureau of Investigation from 1984 to 2010, has said that he doesn't believe that either man would have carried out these crimes alone. He doesn't even believe that Richard Hickok would have had the nerve to enter the clutter home by himself that night. Perry Smith and Richard Hickok could have walked away, drove off into the night with their tails between their legs. Truman Capote's theory was that Perry Smith acted out of rage, rage at seeing a normal family which he lacked, and it's that rage that caused him to commit murder. It's undeniable that Perry Smith had a traumatic childhood, the death of a parent, an abusive father, and abusive nuns who were supposed to care for him, a penile injury, the suicide of one sibling, and reportedly of a second sibling, another sibling that cut off all contact with him, an accident that permanently injured his legs, and a resulting aspirin addiction. Richard Hickok had a family that was intact, but an interest in teenage girls that seemed to start even before his car accident. However, he suffered a possible brain injury, altering his personality for the rest of his time on Earth. So, that brings us to the old question. 
Can mental illness and or a brain injury make a murderer? Well, that brings the old answer. Plenty of people have A, and it doesn't make them do B. People with the concept of right and wrong who have the ability to plan out a home invasion, to murder two children and two adults, to hide evidence, albeit not very well, do they deserve sympathy because of previous trauma? Capote brought that sympathy, that pity to the book. He wrote about the killers as real people and even mourned the death of Perry Smith. If you had heard of Smith's and Hickok's lives, outside of any mention of the clutters, if you'd heard of their traumas and life before 1959, would you have sympathy? Sure, maybe. But what does that mean knowing that the two did commit brutal acts of murder? Do we owe them some kind of pass? It's never that black or white, and immediately we're brought back to the victims and the four people that spent the final hour of their lives in fear, in the final moments of their lives, knowing exactly what their fate was. That they were never going to celebrate that Thanksgiving. They were never going to step foot outside again. They didn't even have a chance to say goodbye to each other. Herb, Bonnie, Nancy, and Kenyon Clutter are buried at Valley View Cemetery in Garden City, Kansas. There's a memorial park dedicated to the Clutter family in Holcomb. It was built at the request of Bobby Rupp, Nancy Clutter's boyfriend. Thank you for listening to Method and Madness. This is an independent podcast, so the best way you can support it is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcast or on Podchaser. I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. There's a Method and Madness page on Facebook as well. To chat or to discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is research written and hosted by me. It is edited by Moen Spo. Thank you to Faith and John of the Mission Rejected podcast and to Rohan for lending their voices for the theme music. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast dealing with dark and disturbing subject matter. For crisis support, text hello to 741-741.